3: something that might be seen as eccentricity or outlandish behavior in in current society or in previous society sometimes we just need to take a little time to reflect on the way that people behaved and then we can actually see that that many of these people were pioneers they were just ahead of their game
0: that was david Bramwell discussing some of history's most unusual inventors
2: And they were trying to bring back, give back to people a purpose uh, in their work and joy in labour.
0: And that was Rosalind Ormiston on location at an important site for the arts and craft movement.
4: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. With the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
0: Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of November 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with the author and BBC radio presenter David Bramwell. David is the co-author, along with Joe Keeling of a new book entitled The Auditorium, which charts the careers of a group of unconventional inventors through history. Our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn, caught up with him recently to find out more.
4: Along with Joe Keeling, you're one of the authors of a new book called The Auditorium, which recounts the tales of 48 compelling individuals driven by obsession, curiosity, trickery, courage and gumption. Can you give us a little flavour of the book and the type of people that are in it?
3: Well, we've broken the book into different chapters. I think one of the hardest things was was finding the uh, the chapter headings. So we've we've looked at tricksters and subversives, creative mavericks. Um, there's a chapter called Wild at Heart, which was about adventurers and people with 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 great courage who overcame great difficulties. Um, pioneers and inventors, and the last one, which is Explorers of the Mind, which was more about philosophers. And we also touch upon people who venture into the world of, of psychedelics. Um, and, and how that has impacted on our society as well.
4: But all the people covered are eccentric or what we would now maybe see as outsiders.
3: Absolutely. And one of the things that we were very uh, cautious about when we started the book was that it wasn't just going to be a regular book of eccentrics. In fact, there's a really lovely introduction by John Mitchinson from Unbound. And his his introduction to the book talks about some vicar from Cornwall, many, 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 many years ago, who who turned up uh, was was a, a local character. He insisted that the um, the congregation and um, the, the locals in the village uh, become vegans. Uh, he was very um, didactic about um, about what they should do, what they what they couldn't do, and eventually he sort of drove everybody away. And so, in response, he made cardboard cutouts. Of, of the congregation, which he put in place of where they would have been, and he put barbed wire fencing around around the church, and John said, "This is such a lovely story of eccentricity, but he's not in the book, and the reason he's not in the book is be- because he didn't change the world he didn't he didn't impact on the way that we see the world or change the way that we, we we see the world and 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 that's what all these people have in common that something that might be seen as eccentricity or outlandish behavior. In, in current society or in previous society, sometimes we just need to take a little time to reflect on the way that people behaved, and then we can actually see that, that many of these people were pioneers. They were just ahead of their game. So one character that springs to mind is, is Dr. William Price, and Price was around at the late, um, late part of the 19th century, and he was a, he was a doctor in a, in a Welsh a welsh village he was very respected but he was also into into paganism he became a druid he began dressing in in what looks like from the photos a very early form of the onesie and uh, which was which was covered in in runic symbols and he carried a staff and he was uh, a vegetarian and uh, and a naturist but he was very concerned about the lifestyle of the villagers and because this was the industrial revolution he saw that a lot of ill health he believed that a lot of the ill health was coming from uh, the way people were living. They were, they were being worked too hard, they were suffering from from um, you know, diseases related to pollution um, and the industry they were in and so he uh, approached their health from a holistic point of view he, changed, he recommended dietary changes, he recommended more fresh air and walking he wouldn 't treat smokers. he said that smokers were, you know, were not looking after themselves i mean this this is incredible pioneering. Thinking for um, you know for the turn of the last century, he he also at the age of eighty three, uh, <laughs> sired his first child um, and uh, and decided to call him Jeezy Crees uh, Jesus Jesus Christ in Welsh. Um, sadly the child died only only a few months um, after it was born. So he took um took the body up to the to the top of a local mountain and and want, and, and cremated um his his son's body, which at the time was illegal. And so he was arrested, and he defended himself in court, and he spoke about the environmental impact of of only burying bodies. He talks about how in different parts of the world um it was okay for for um, for bodies to be cremated and he changed the law you know the, the um he was he was you know the body was was allowed to be be cremated, and the law changed this was nineteen o two so you've got these it, he's a classic example I think of the characters in the book you know this very um strong willed individual who wanted to live his own way or you know characters live in the, her own way um and he made a change not a huge not not a global change but a but a small but significant change in the way we live in the way we we see the world and and that that is at the heart of um of the characters in this book and I think obsession was the was the word we kind of landed on obsession is is something which can um be something which, well, you know, we, we think of, of, of dictators and we, and we can think of, of people committing terrible crimes in history as being obsessives. But there is a good side to obsession as well, in that it makes us single-minded, it takes us on a path. And, um, and, and for the, the characters in the book, it is largely a celebration of obsession, although we have put people in the book who had a detrimental Impact on the planet as well because it, it didn't seem fair to only just talk about people who created positive change, but also those that created you know negative change as well.
4: Mm-hmm. So you spoke there a bit about obsession. Um, what else are your main criteria for being a pioneering eccentric?
3: I think I think just living living a life that seems contrary to the way that other people do something that is considered outside of the norm and. I became really obsessed with, really fascinated by, and really sort of fell in love with, with you know, his, his, uh, his attitude was Quentin Crisp. Now, tw- 20, 30 years ago, I, I think that Quentin Crisp's name would, would have been um, pretty well known. But I think that he, it's a name that's sort of fallen out of fashion. And, um, and I think, you know, sort of the next generation probably wouldn't know who he was. But Crisp was a flamboyant gay man who stepped out into London society in the late 1920s, wearing ne- nail polish and dyed hair and colourful flamboyant clothes, and his attitude was, I will not fit into society, I will be myself, and I will wait for society to form around me. And, and that was a very courageous thing to do because, of course, you know he received violence, he was verbally abused, he was spat upon. And how prescient that that he, you know, he went from being, as he said, a social pariah to being a celebrity, to being someone who was sought out for his opinion on lifestyle, about how we should live. You know, he became, became a great monologuist, a great uh, sort of TV chat show host. And um, w- what was also very curious was that th- these are his words. He, he said, as a, as a gay man, I just want to be invited Welcome to the party. And the party for him was was the mainstream. It was the heterosexual culture he saw around him. But then he added afterwards, I never imagined that queer culture would end up hosting some of these parties. So, you know, in his own lifetime, he saw this great transformation from being someone who was an outsider um, in society, to some, to you know, to part of a, of a group, a minority who actually not only just accepted by society, but actually cultural pioneers, societal pioneers.
4: So it's in many way people who are just really ahead of the curve.
3: Yes, I think largely, largely ahead of the curve, or just, or just doing things their own way. I mean, I- Ivor Cutler is another one that's someone whose whose work I adore, and maybe it wouldn't be fair to say that Ivor was ahead of the curve, but just doing something completely different to everybody else. I am mean, no surprise that that you know Ivor had more peel sessions uh, than, than any other any other artist.
4: And he, he was a poet?
3: He was a poet. He was a he was a songwriter. He wrote children's books. He, there was also something very Dadaist about about the way he went about life. I think about Gilbert and George in the way that they sort of embody their art. It's a performance, and with Ivor, it was a performance as well. He would he would travel around London on his bicycle, wearing plus fours and a big hat with with flowers in his hat. And he made stickers. He called them stickies, and they all and they had his own aphorisms that he would put on these on these stickers. And there's a lovely story about when. He got on a bus one day and the bus driver was having a bad, bad day, and he was yelling at one of the uh, one of the people getting on the bus. And Ivor silently reached forward with one of his stickers and he put it on the driver's lapel. And the driver with a you know with a face of thunder looked down and the sticker said, You are beautiful. And he he burst into into giggles. And you know, what a what a wonderful and unusual thing to do. You know, this was uh, this is the kind of man I was. So I, I don't think he was a pioneer, but he just he he lived a very, a very playful kind of life. And I think one of the lines that he he said was, um in, in one of his radio programs, the interviewer said, um, uh, uh, "Ivor, why have you never grown up?" And his reply was, "I've been busy."
4: So, how did you go about uncovering or compiling all of these characters? Where did you find them?
3: I would say, I would say many of them were many of the ones that I wrote about were people that already. Interested me and, and and fascinated me. Some of some of whom, a number of the small number of them, I'd, I'd met, um, like Falco, like Falco Tarasacco and, and Ken Campbell. Um, others through word of mouth, through you know, through research, through um, you know, through through friends. Uh, and also we we had 12 contributors to the book as well. So there's there's, there's quite a lot of, um, of of the characters came from from writers and from artists. We had people like uh, Sir Tim Smith, who set up the Eden Project. We had Richard Turner, who's a Radio 4 producer. Um, we had Sarah Anglis, who's a musician and roboticist. So someone like Sarah unearthed a story about... An Eastbourne housewife called Muriel Howarth, who was into atomic gardening in the nineteen fifties, and, uh, and and was into uh, trying to solve world hunger by by looking for mutant plants by by if if um if seeds are irradiated if they're blasted with atoms then one in a million can become a mutant seed that will not be um uh, d- uh, bad to eat um but would would potentially be enormous um it's a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack and she was never successful in finding these these mutant seeds but she was thinking ahead of the game and actually 60 70 years on from muriel people are now looking back at this this way of actually you know modifying um modifying food, and obviously it's controversial because we you know we 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 have mixed feelings about the idea of, of genetically modified um, uh, produce. but but you know, here was someone on their own just just fascinated by the atomic age and exploring it uh, as an individual and And we would never have found out about Muriel Howarth without someone like Sarah Anglis, who wrote about her. And Sarah is is someone who researches unusual people from history, particularly women. Uh, and so, you know, we're very grateful to have such a broad team of, of writers bringing ideas to us.
4: Yeah, because um, Muriel, like you say, is just one of the kind of remarkable and unusual women in the book. Another one is Elaine Morgan, who I found very intriguing.
3: I, I love Elaine Morgan. Yes, I was so happy, so delighted to be able to to include her. And and here was a woman challenging Our... Um, preconceived ideas of our of our evolutionary history this the, she was challenging the savanna theory that uh, the, the reason why we became bipedal the reason why we lost our hair was because we, we came down from the trees and we started lobbing spears around um, in the uh, in, in the savanna and and she, you know she looked at this with a cool eye and said um, it 's a very male centric view of evolution this um, why is it that men are generally more hairy than women if it was the men who needed to lose the hair to do the running around to cool the body down well, they were lobbing spears. And if the women were, as, as was perceived at the time, um, sitting under the trees and, and looking after the young, well, so what? All their hair fell out as well, just because the men's needed to? It doesn't really add up this. Now, it wasn't, she didn't come up with this theory. This this was uh, a theory that had been around for a number of decades, but um, but no one had been brave enough to actually step forward and, and put it, you know, sort of to, to the scientific community and to the public for fear of um, of being ridiculed scientists, you know, they, they do fear um their status if they if they put forward an idea which which seems um you know ridiculous at the time. So she wrote about it extensively. She did a book called um the aquatic ape theory. She wrote a book called The Descent of of Women, Descent of Woman, and became a bit of a celebrity at the time, but she was poo-pooed by by the science community. They said, you know, you're a woman, you're a feminist, you're not a scientist, we're not going to take this seriously, you haven't done any proper research. It's all, you know, it's all speculative um, uh, research, um, speculative theories. And in recent years, Sir David Attenborough has taken up the cause, and he has gone looking for more hardcore evidence to to back up the um, the aquatic hypothesis, as it's now known. In fact, it's the waterside hypothesis, as, as it's now being called.
4: So it seems like with people like Elaine Morgan, one of the key things about being a pioneer is being brave, or not really caring what anyone thinks about you.
3: Indeed, and of course, there's always there's always the danger um, that the the you're wrong. You you can you can live a whole life believing you know the earth is flat or being a solipsist or you know having a particular particular worldview which actually you know is is later proven to be um, to be nonsense. In fact, I was I was reading recently about the the Guinness World Record holder for Nessie spotting, but a, a gentleman who'd been residing in a caravan by Loch Ness for twenty four years. Waiting for the chance to photograph Nessie and therefore prove that uh, that she existed, and after 24 years, he he packed up his binoculars and he left his caravan and he went home, announcing to the press, if there ever was anything there, it was probably a catfish or something. And and so you know, there's someone who was very fixed, very obsessive. <laughs> about about a particular thing. He wanted it to be true, but but sadly, you know, in the age of the mobile phone, we know that if there was Nessie, if there was Bigfoot by now, it would have been captured with, um, you know, with someone's, uh, someone's camera. So, I mean, there you know, there's obsession that um, sadly doesn't lead to cultural change, but just leads to maybe a realization a bit late in life that um, you've been barking at the wrong tree. And not all of the people in the book are are successful. We include Thomas Midgley Jr., whose, whose tagline is the worst inventor in history. This was the gentleman who put lead into into petrol and claimed at the time that it wouldn't have any adverse effects and he also put CFCs into aerosols and fridges and then he ended up at, sadly um, strangling himself to death with a contraption that he'd built to get himself in and out of bed because he'd contracted polio so his his entire life was was a disaster of um of uh, of inventions um so we, we, it, we it was it was important we felt to put in put in people like this as well just to um just to balance it up a bit
4: as you say um obsession can be wrong headed in those cases you just mentioned. And you mentioned very briefly earlier that can also be something that isn't necessarily for the positive, that it's not necessarily always admirable. And some people, I'm thinking of people that you mentioned like um, Tuesday Lobsang Rampa. He was an eccentric, but he really was a a fraudster in many ways.
3: I'm going to defend Tuesday Lobsang Rampa. I think think he was a wonderful individual. I've no idea whether... I suspect that he probably did believe his own, you know, his own myth. Uh, But I I think you have to doff your cap to a, a man who in 1956 fell out of a tree whilst owl spotting. He was an unemployed plumber. He put his back out. So he had no work. So what did he do? By leap of imagination, he reinvented himself as a Tibetan lama. He wrote a book called The Third Eye, in which he claimed to have uh, lived in in Tibet um, and uh, and uh, brought up in a, a lamasery. And, uh, and 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 you know, wrote about his adventures, meeting meeting uh, Yetis and yogi flying, etc. So obviously, and this book was a, was a, was a global bestseller. It's still it is still the UK's best selling book on Tibet, and and of course you could say that well it was just. An act of of, of fraud, and uh, and we should not be celebrating this man. But he went on to write twenty books, including one that he claimed was dictated to him by his uh, his Siamese cat. And there was, um, tellingly, there was an interview with the Dalai Lama, who who Doctor Chulapa Ramper, A.K.A. Cyril Hoskin, uh, claimed to have met on several occasions. When when the Dalai Lama was was asked about this, uh, he said he said, "No, i I've, I've never met this gentleman, and I believe that his work, his books are." entirely works of fiction but he added i believe that he's done a lot for the cause of freeing tibet because he drew a lot of attention to tibet and and i have to say i i I have a soft spot for people who play the role of the trickster so i I do i would defend uh uh, tuesday Sam rampa because um i just think there's just something wonderful about uh, someone to have the audacity to write a book about a country that he'd never even visited he didn't even own a, own a passport so um so i mean trickery is i mean trickery is i think it's necessary for society i mean also because of the age we live in as well It'd be very difficult for anyone to be able to to do the to to pass themselves self off as uh as, as a llama as uh as, as this gentleman did because some, um, you know we, we can we can find this information out very easily so it's it's almost it's a story from the past that wouldn't really ever be able to 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 happen again in uh, you know in our current age so it's it's a nice little sort of snapshot of, of 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 historic trickery
4: yeah there's something nostalgic about those some of these stories isn't there like um that that you wouldn't get nowadays and like the story of Reginald Bray, which is one of my favorites
3: me me too and so Reginald Bray was a victorian he was a he was a trickster as well uh, and and what I like about the story is that we don't think of the Victorians as, being, as, as having a sense of mischief. We think of them as, as being very very uptight, very proper. But this was a gentleman who, in his late teens, uh, when he'd become an accountant, he, he was an accountant for the, for the whole of his life, a very you know regular, wholesome job, and he popped into his Local post office, and he found that the post office had issued the very first manual for post office workers, uh, with all of the details, the ins and outs of, of how the system worked. It wasn't intended for public reading, but he bought it, read it from cover to cover, and treated it um, as a challenge. And within the book, he found out all sorts of quirks, like the smallest living thing you could then send through the, through the mail was was a bee, the largest was was an elephant. And he began; he set up a you know, he's, he's in his spare time, he set up a life where he would dedicate his time to pranking the the Royal Mail. He sent 30,000 singular objects through the mail during his lifetime. And he began by sending things like cigarettes and turnips where he'd carved the address into the turnip and a bowler hat, a frying pan. Um, And then he turned turned his attention to to living things. He sent his 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 Terry, a Bob, through through the mail and then himself, first by bike and then the second time on foot. Now obviously he wasn't put in a in a in a package. He was he was escorted um by by a by a postman or postwoman. Um but I, I, it's just a so wonderful you know, it's a wonderful story of, um, of of trickery. He was the first person that we know who who wrote to Father Christmas. We have we have evidence that he wrote to Father Christmas. I think in 1902, and it wasn't until the 50s that the British Postal Service started to address the growing number of letters to Santa. Um, admittedly, not from grown up grown ups, but but actually from from children. So he was he was ahead of his game, and uh, and and yes, I think I think it could be credited as. As artistic as well as as Trixie.
4: It's often said that there's a fine line between genius and madness, as you all well know. Would you say that that's fair with the people that you've looked at?
3: Well, I'd have to come back to a quote from from one of our one of our characters, Ken Campbell, who was a maverick theatre director who died uh, seven or eight years ago, and he his um one of one of the um one of the maxims that he lived by was if it's not impossible it's not worth doing and and as a consequence uh, in in creating theatre he would he would make theatre productions that you you would you would laugh about down the pub and say yeah that'd be great but no actually it's not possible and and ken he, he staged the worlds longest play, The Warp, which was 24 hours long. He he did uh, he did Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy where where the, the audience were transported around on a giant hoverboard from from stage to stage. He did one called The War of the Newts where the audience were put into a into a swimming pool up to their waist and the and the cast paraded around the swimming pool dressed as newts and sometimes interacted with with the audience you know in the in the water i say swimming pool it was an abandoned warehouse that they filled with water and the reason i mention this is because ken was often described as mad they'd say oh oh, that mad ken campbell with his with his crazy giant eyebrows and his raspy voice but ken would retort i'm not mad i've just read different books to you and i think there's something very this this you know it's it may seem a flippant response, but I think there's there's something very, very true about that. You know, it is all relative. We you know we we think of people as being as being weird and, and not like us because they just act and think in a different way. But it's just, you know, they may have just read different books.
0: That was David Bramwell. The auditorium is out now in the UK, published by Chambers. In the US, it's available for the Kindle. Meanwhile, the December issue of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. This month's edition includes articles on Edward I, The Murder of Rasputin, The Klondike Gold Rush, Medieval Cities, Black British History and plenty more. You can get hold of our December issue in all good newsagents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United Kingdom, where you can pick a free book worth £25. To take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP210. The offer ends on the 31st of December this year.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, need to hire you need indeed
0: one of the regular features we run in the magazine is history explorer where we visit a site of historical interest accompanied by a relevant expert for our december issue we paid a visit to Standin' house in west sussex one of the jewels in the crown of the 19th century arts and Craft movement joining our production editor spencer mizzen on location there was rosalind ormiston Co-author of William Morris, artist, craftsman, pioneer. Let's hear how they got on.
5: Rosalind, for the um, uninitiated, what what is the Arts and Craft movement? Um, what it was, was it was an
2: influential movement of like minded people who wanted to return to well not exactly the middle ages but to the craftsmanship of the middle ages, uh, bringing back uh, silversmiths uh, woodworkers uh, because they felt that it was lost through the industrial revolution uh, that many people were coming from the country to the city and working in factories and it was uh, it wasn 't the work was demeaning but it was just it had no purpose, and they were trying to bring back, give back to people a purpose uh, in their work and joy in labour.
5: OK, so is it, was it so kind of a, a reaction to industrialisation in many ways then?
2: Yes, indeed. And and also, uh, I mean, when we think of arts and crafts, we think of architecture and obviously decorative arts and applied arts. And if I may, I just say it goes back to how the argument began or the debate was when they had, from the 1820s, 30s, the style in in Britain was classicism, uh, particularly John Nash uh, in London. And um, um, a man, an architect called um, Pugin, Augustus Welby, Northmore Pugin, Uh, uh, was an architect. Um, He uh, was very angry about this because he said that if you look around Britain, um, uh, churches look like temples, Greek temples, uh, pagan buildings. um, Our banks and... Uh, hotels looked like Gothic cathedrals. He said this is completely wrong, um, and so he wrote contrasts. 1836 was published, saying, "Look at the the life of the in the medieval period." And this is where it comes in, where they're going back to the Middle Ages. Yeah. But, um, look at the uh, the lifestyle there, where the monasteries would feed the poor and nurture them and help people in the community, and you had guilds of workmen apprentices. And then you look at the 19th century, where it's um, the factories and the people are still poor, living in terrible accommodation. And he contrasted the Middle Ages to the 18... Well, he died in uh, 1852, so the 1840s. And that sort of kick-started a whole raft of, of, um, well, people that could do something about it um, to actually do something about it and start looking at the design of our buildings, design of our arts and and crafts. Yeah.
5: So did they, did they see like a growing alienation between these designs and real people's lives?
2: Yes, and um, poor design.
5: Absolutely. Right.
2: The, the main thing was um, poor design. Uh, the 1851 exhibition were really brought that home. Before that, they knew this because there were many expo- um, expositions and exhibitions. And they could yeah. see that because you could manufacture anything, yeah. anything uh, wood you could make your cupboards and furniture and wardrobes from it. Um they were just throwing in things. They'd throw a little bit of Egyptian this or a yeah. Greek that without any thought of actually what the purpose of the the the, the furniture was and it sort of just diluted this one, um, the, the craftsmanship of the past. And so um when the eighteen fifty one exhibition came and that was on for six months from May yeah. to October. So this is a really high
5: profile event. Absolutely, wasn't
2: it? and it's international. Yeah, so you're sure. getting uh you're getting um production from America, from Australia, obviously from Europe, everybody there and the census was at the end of it how appalling the taste was, or the design right. was. So can can you give they, me some examples of, of um, why they didn't like this? this what,
5: what was it about? Well, I, I, like?
2: I know there's one in the V&A. Actually, it's just actually it wasn't it wasn't manufactured, but it's because they could. They made a chair out of antlers, horns. You couldn't okay. sit on it. It was just right. it was ugly, uh, yeah. totally unusable. Uh, and yet, because they could, they had the Or they think, oh, well, this is handcrafted, handmade. made. But in fact, it lost the objectivity is the fact that if it's a chair, you want to actually use it. In amongst that comes the fact, well, what about how people are living as well? Yeah. And, you know, the looking at the industrialization, the expansion of the Manchester, Liverpool, the, the factories, um, of course, the railways. Yeah, all of this it's expanding. Uh, that actually, what's happening to the people, and it's going back to that that, that yeah. you know that we've lost something from our past. So, what did they
5: think was happening to the people? What was it that concerned them about industrialisation?
2: Uh, well, it's because um, because we were like the centre of uh, the industrial nations yeah. at that time. Uh, that that more and more people were coming from... Well, this comes from the 1780s. coming from the, the countryside to the city. Yeah. But, of course, there's nowhere to live. They're living in poor conditions. You know, you just have to read something like Mayhew's London of 1850. that they're, they're living in cramped, sordid conditions, and they're working all hours, yeah. you know, to make money. Uh, and they're getting... Poorer and the rich are getting richer. The industrialists on this, and so there was a social problem as well. So right. it wasn't just on what they were making. It was picked up um, by William Morris, a yep. young man. Now yep. he is—he he didn't actually ever step inside the 1851 exhibition. Uh, he was brought up. Like, when I say as a medievalist, but he had most wonderful um, upbringing in the countryside in a large estate. Uh, he had his own pony. He had a suit of armour, parents made, had a suit of armour made for him. <laughs> and he read from the age of four to seven, because he's uh, he, he calls himself a sickly child. He actually read the Waverley novels, you know, a right. uh, Ward Scott. Um, so he's steeped in the Middle Ages. This is yeah. a period he loves.
5: So is he quite, from quite a wealthy background? Yes, yeah, yes, okay.
2: absolutely. Yes, his father city, a wealthy background. Yeah. Um, and they lived a sort of, uh, obviously a modern life, but also a medieval when they made their own butter, their own beer, they had plenty of servants. And this is, so he's grown up with a lifestyle that actually does hark back. You can see many um, strands going back to yeah. how people did live. Um, a sort of a community in his house, lots of servants. And um, he rather likes that way of living. And uh, um, he doesn't, so I say, he doesn't even step inside. Which <laughs> I, I'm amazed at that still. that He yeah, didn't step sure, inside yeah. the, the, to, to see what actually was in there. But uh, at Oxford, he went up to study theology. Yeah. Uh, he met the um, Edward Byrne Jones, who is one of the pre raphaelite painters. Yeah. Um, and he was introduced to Ruskin's book, and he read that and he, it was a revelation that, you know, that really, it is truth to materials. You've got to be honest about what you're making and the people count, you know, the, the, the guilds, the communes, this counts. And so they, um, he left to become, he thought, uh, an architect, having read Ruskin on Gothic architecture. Yeah. And um, uh, there, that's when he met Um, In uh, the office in Oxford, uh, George Edmund Street, who's a Gothic revivalist architect of the law courts in the Strand, Uh, he met Philip Webb, and this was to be... This is the start of the Arts and Crafts movement when they get together, architect and designer, and also Morris, with his ideas of of how he wants to have a better life for people.
5: So the Arts and Crafts movement, if there are say, three or four signatures of that movement... What would they be?
2: Truth to materials. So yeah. you're making uh, your furniture is from uh, the local woods. Yeah. Um, you've got a craftsman who's been apprenticed and knows how to make it. Yeah. And he makes it. It can take many hours, hours, weeks to make a piece of furniture. But yeah. It's made to the highest standard uh, of craftsmanship. Right. And this is what's brought back, is that the apprenticeship started to actually yeah. get people back into making um, traditional furniture, a silverware, particularly um Sillsmith, that you the beauty is in what you're looking at is that in how it's been made and as what Ma- morris said you you shouldn't have anything in your house that's not useful or beautiful right. and preferably both so <laughs> it's not something that just appears
5: in a the factory there it's something you've actually it is, it, it is,
2: because the joy, he said, was in the labour of making it. Right. And the, again, they're going back to the stonemasons of the Middle Ages, where you don't know who they are, although they'd have their mason's mark, yeah. is that the joy is actually in making the building, in the craftsmanship, because if you go back to the Middle Ages, this is where the guilds are, Um. that uh, you apprenticed for three years or more. It depends on what you were um, apprenticed for. And yeah. then you became a master of the guild, you became right. a member, and then you... Uh, they looked after you. Yeah. So how much should there be a contract, how much you're getting, what you're working on, and there was a pride in what you were doing and that's what they wanted to, to bring back, a pride yeah. in what you're making, which, of course, factory work didn't have that right. because you're just part of a line. But, well, how it then established itself, because Morris um, realised he's not going to be an architect, uh, he then decided he was going to be a painter yeah. uh, because of his connection with Edwin Burne jones and the pre-Aphrolytes who were friends. Um he met one of the, uh, the models from the pre raphaelite circle, uh, Jane Burden, and they got married. And so he needed a house. And this is how it really begins from the Red House in Bexley Heath um, in the 1858, uh, where he asked Webb to design a house for him. And they designed it together and it's going to yeah. be a vernacular house. It's going to be fit in to the, old, the English style of a traditional house. Uh, it's going to look organic, it's going to look as though you could add on, and he didn't mean to add on pieces to the house. He wanted a commune, really. He wanted Edward Byrne-Jones and his family to live there. He, he wanted it to be like a, a sort of, a, well, a commune of friends. Sure. And so the house, uh, Webb designed the house for that, and that's what sort of kicked aside Webb's career as well um, as an architect. Uh, but what they dis- realised, they had painting parties. Their friends would come down. The uh, Pre-Raphaelites, I say. Um, but they were—they they, realised they didn't have any furniture. There was nothing that they wanted to put. They wanted handmade furniture that fitted the period of the house yeah. because it is sort of going back to like the 1400s. That's what they wanted, and uh, they couldn't find anything. So they decided there, on the spur of the moment, one weekend house party to have a company, and this is how we right. get Morris. Marshall Fulton Co. Um, right. All their uh, skills coming into a company, yeah. and that's when they decide this is about 1860, 61. They go into the 1862 exhibition as a company, yeah. as a commercial company. They're making stained glass and ironwork and tapestries, right. and they're getting. And this is where they get their customers from, mainly churches for the stained glass. But Edward J- Burne Jones makes the stained glass. And so they're they're working together as a it's like their own little commune, but they're working together in London as a group. Yeah,
5: oh, you said you mentioned the eighteen sixty two exhibition. Did yes, you explain yes. What that
2: works? Yes. So you have the eighteen fifty one. Yeah. And so the eighteen sixty two is um, the follow on to it. Right. Okay. Um, it's uh, in the same sort of. It's in the same. Actually, the eighteen fifty one was in uh, Hyde Park. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a glass building because they hadn't really worked out what they're going to have, so they had a prefabricated. Uh, Large greenhouse, really. Um, But by 1862, it's actually where the Natural History Museum is now. That's where they had the 1862 buildings. And uh, so, this again was an international building. And so, you could show your wares there, you know. And so, Maurice Marshall Foglico had a stand there, and they had the medieval stand. And as it happened in the 1851 exhibition, it was Pugin who uh, had the medieval stand with ironwork and stained glass. Right. Okay. So they're following on from Pugin yeah. uh, and it's all handcraft, handmade. Um, but of course it's expensive. And okay. so yeah. it tends to be the um, church wardens, or church builders who are, or not church builders so much as those that are um, wanting stained glass that they're getting their orders from. Yeah. But from this are also meeting and networking. Morris was a wonderful networker. And yeah. so of course the customs had to be Wealthy upper middle class, yeah. wealthy, you know, to actually uh, sustain their business. So this was all going, sort of gaining
5: momentum like There it is, and they,
2: they they did actually have a go at making furniture, yeah. um, and it was just horrendous. It was like right. huge pieces of heavy wood, and so Morris Morris had a go at making it, and they yeah. realised he, um, uh, he he sort of had to farm that out really. But yes. again, that they had craftsmen to make it, yeah. and also that. Um, that you get, I mean, this by the well, this is the 1862 exhibition where it sort of starts off and it's gaining momentum. and People are, um, well, from the early centuries, there's guilds forming, yeah. um, Artworkers Guild, yeah. uh, Century Guild, um, the Guild of Handicraft, um, people coming together.
5: These designs start appearing in the houses of the, the great and the good Well, Britain. um, can you give me some examples? Of, yes, of course. Of well, say, say
2: that, um, with. With uh, Morris and Co., yes. let's um, say with that, because they are at the forefront, um, that Philip Webb, um, in I think it's 1861, which I have to get my, um, he made a house for in One Palace Green, uh, which is in Kensington Gardens. Yeah. Um, he made that house, he designed that house for George Howard, the ninth Earl of Carlisle. Oh, so okay. was in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, it fell foul of the planning. You know, the local council planners who, right. who didn't like the way it looked because it's um, it's red brick and stone, and again, it's local materials. Um, he's making it, he's making a house that uh, fits the purpose for what they want. They want a yeah. townhouse, and from that, um, he then goes on to make other houses for George Howard up yeah. in the uh, because the Howards, of course, they also owned an estate on this castle, Howard, but they also owned um, um, in Cumbria, Narwhis Castle. Sure, and yeah. they go, but I think I must say, with. Philip Webb and Morris is the fact that you've got the whole package. Yeah. So Webb would design the house and Morris and Co, uh, Edwin Burn jones yeah. they, they would actually design the interiors. Right, okay. So um, it's a very clever commercial operation. That yeah. it's a total work of art. Yeah. You know, that you get the whole everything. You There's nothing from outside coming in. Um, and this is the interesting thing, that they are, George Howard is, of course, an aristocracy, but many of the people they're designing for are wealthy um, industrialists. Right. So okay. uh, we've got a, there's a fabulous house in the Lake District, Blackwell, Boness on Windermere, yeah. and that's made for a Manchester brewery owner, and that's his summer home, much like Stannon is you yeah, know, made yeah. uh, for a, a wealthy, well, again, upper-middle-class solicitor. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, a lovely country home. So you, this is the... This is what is the downside, is that whereas the, the idea is to make it, that it's um, wonderful that people are getting joy from what they're making, and so the craftsman is the fact that it takes so many man-hours, and women-hours, of course, the tapestry, to make something. Yeah. But the cost is, well, it can only be afforded by the very rich. Right. Uh, and so you're actually, um, you're not defeating the purpose, but you're actually not making it available to all.
5: So you wouldn't have had... Um... People from the working classes living in a in a house adorned with William Morris designing products.
2: And no, no, and it, because they couldn't afford it, because no. he insisted on handmade. Yeah, and have been the same at the beginning.
5: Would he have liked to have seen that? Do you think? Yes, I yeah. think uh, very much so. Yeah, he,
2: um, he realised at the end he was defeated by the fact that he was he, he wanted it um, the arts and crafts for all.
5: But he brought us on to my next question quite nicely now, because this wasn't just about design, was it? There's almost like a social reform aspect to this movement, wasn't yes, there? Yes,
2: absolutely. Um, that, and you see that. I mean, I'm John Hibbert, but you see that in the, in the guilds to say that they form, uh, that Ashby, uh, who uh, took the arts and crafts to America, but Ashby, um, when he came down uh, from uh, university, he went to Toynbee Hall you know, in the east end of London, right, yeah. which was for um, very poor, I mean, the, the sort of wretched area. Yeah. the the East End of London um, in the 18... Well, the whole time, really, in the 1850s particularly. um, But Toynbee Hall was to actually help people, the poorest people of the area, and they would teach them. And he lectured on Ruskin... Yeah. Uh, The same thing, stones of Venice and nature of Gothic. And he thought to himself, well, actually, I would like to do this. I would like to have a a commune uh, of like-minded people and we could make things. And he started with uh, himself. Three people put £50 into it to make a a guild um, and uh, the Guild of Handicraft. It started in the East End and by the end of the century, I think, well, he had 70 and then, when the lease ran out in 1902, yeah. uh, they moved to Chippin Camden, 150 yeah. sort of on their bicycles. I presume they got the train to the nearest place. And, uh, yeah. and, but they moved absolutely everybody, 150 yeah. uh, families to um, the Cotswolds.
5: OK, so fine I'm going to turn back to Stanton, which is obviously yeah. the, the house we're sitting in, in at the moment. What makes this such a great example of a, um, an arts and craft movement uh, inspired house?
2: I think for a start, is that Webb in particular... and is this Philip Webb the designer? Fi- sorry, yes, Webb. Philip Webb is the design. This is his last house. Philip Webb didn't just design the house. Uh, if you go into the house, you'll find the glass is made by Webb. You'll find that the, the, the wood in the dining room to carve meat, to uh, put the plates on, is also designed by Webb. Um, it's a total... Work of art so he's really micromanaging this place. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, of course, it means he's controlling it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, here, well, it's said that of course his original ideas incorporated having a library, which was going to be rather expensive. Although it's also said that the owner, um, the Beale family, James Beale, that they thought they didn't really need that. They had a house in Holland Park in London. Yeah. This was their summer home. Right, but you are talking a immensely wealthy, yeah. um, upper middle class people, yeah. um, and so he's built a family home. Uh, for James Beale and his children to come to at the weekends or during the summer. And so, of course, uh, for the men, there is a billiard room. For the ladies, there's a morning room. And so every room has a purpose. And so when he was designing the house, he went through it with Mrs Beale. What is it that you want? And Mr Beale, what is it that you want? And he designed the house around their needs. And what kind of people
5: are the Beale's then? You might want to say they money from...
2: The railways? Yes, well, he was a uh, solicitor, but um, yes, the family made it from the railways and were also instrumental in in getting the Midland um, rail network coming into uh, St Pancras. Uh, So a wealthy family. And he lived in, I think he lived in Bedford or Birmingham, but he moved to London to actually um, control this side of the, uh, the, the Beale family sure. and this side of the business and that's how they ended up uh, coming here because the railway came to East Grinstead and so of course then they'd get a pony and track from the station to the so, house.
5: Right so we're in the um something called the Dog Leg Corridor at Standon House and we're standing next to um a piece of wallpaper designed by William Morris um Roslyn, could you tell us a bit
2: more about that, please? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Morris wanted to make everything in the house, or, you know, uh, everything. And so he wanted to make the wallpapers as much as the tapestries. And so he started designing and he actually uh, painted this design. Uh, he realised he wasn't a, a phenomenal artist you know, of people, but he could do small uh, sections. And so here the trellis paper is beautiful and it's actually taken from his rose garden at the Red House right. in Bexley, um, <sighs> the, the first house. His um, first marital home, and here we see um, this wonderful um, uh, trellis of, well, on the trellis. The roses creeping through, and lovely bluebirds sitting on the, the trellis, coming through, looking down, up, flying around. But what do you see behind it, really, what you can see, what you can't see, in fact, it's handmade. Well, you can see here because it's beautiful. But uh, this takes a block, a block of colour for the pink, for the green, uh, for the trellis. And so it's hugely time-consuming and so immensely expensive uh, to make. Sure. Uh, but he insisted that it had to be handmade. And so when we're standing in this dog leg corridor which leads from the dining room through to the kitchens uh, and the dog leg is, you know, is so that you can't, uh, the smells don't carry, is the vast quantity of handmade paper that we're walking through and how much this must have cost um, you know to the time the man hours to produce it yeah. and the cost to the Beale family to actually uh, purchased it um, so it's just this is one of them but this is one of the earliest ones I think painted at the end of the 1860s into production into the 1870s he had Wardle and co make it for him and they'd be back and forth to make sure that it was exactly as he wanted it and then later in the 1880s he started producing his own papers
5: so, Rosalind, we're in the um, morning room at Stanley House now. And what, what can you tell us about this room? Uh,
2: well, this was for the ladies of the house. The men had the billiards room, and, of course, they had a withdrawing room off that for the men. Uh, and here, this room was the morning room for the ladies, and here they would uh, meet, or they would uh, uh, embroider, sew, so, sew, um, Heard no novels before midday. <laughs> um, probably not adhere to, but it's a very uh, feminine room. Uh, it has two aspects: a double window aspect overlooking the the, the garden, the vegetable garden, and out over to the uh, wonderful views over the uh, to the uh, across the hills. Um, and the walls themselves are. Well, they say, they're covered in, they are wall hangings. They're not to keep out the cold, but they are a tapestry. They are fabric, they're William Morris fabric, but the, the tapestry looks like hangings from the medieval era when sure. you'd have wall hangings to keep yeah. out the draughts. And here, instead of wallpaper, he's actually decorated uh, the walls with fabric. And so it's a continuation of the curtains going around the room and it makes it a very, very enclosed space, uh, very intimate.
0: That was Rosalind Ormiston and Spencer Mizen on location at Standing House. For more details, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk. And now it's time for this week's History News with our website assistant, Eddie Cawthorne.
4: It has been announced that Buckingham Palace is to undergo a £369 million refurbishment funded by the taxpayer. Over the next 10 years, The Royal Residence, which has been the official home of Britain's monarchs since 1837, is due to have its pipes, boilers and electrical systems replaced while remaining open. Staff state that the majority of the palace's mechanical and electrical systems have not been updated for more than 40 years, leading to serious concerns about the risk of water or fire damage to the palace and its art collection. Tony Johnstone Burt, Master of the Queen's Household, stated that by undertaking the repairs now, the palace will hopefully, quote, avert a much more costly and potentially catastrophic building failure in the years to come. In other news, a 400-year-old set of dentures has been discovered by archaeologists in a monastery tomb in Tuscany. Made from human teeth held together by a gold band, the dentures are the first to be discovered from this historical period. Researchers stated that, Although there were descriptions of similar objects in text from the period, there is no known archaeological evidence. They added that the find is, quote, a valuable addition to the history of dentistry. Meanwhile, a sapphire-studded medieval ring has been uncovered in a field in Derbyshire. Dating back to 1250, the solid gold ring was found by an anonymous treasure hunter who described the discovery as, quote, a heart-in-the-mouth moment. Experts have suggested that the ring probably belonged to a high-status figure, perhaps a bishop or a particularly wealthy clergyman. It will be sold at auction next week and is expected to fetch around £2,000.
0: Well, that's about it for this week's episode, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the attack on Pearl Harbour and the history of physics.
4: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher.